All right, take two. Let's get it. Hey, everybody. This is episode two of Funding the Jump. This is David Ivey, and today I'm going to be interviewing Zahava Alston. Zahava, can you give us a quick intro about yourself? Yeah. So, like you said, I'm Zahava Alston. I'm from Rochester, New York. I work right now as an English teacher in Costa Rica. I'm teaching a little bit of French as well, but mostly English. I used to work at the Rochester Parkour Gym, probably my favorite job. And I've been doing parkour for upwards of seven, eight plus years. Awesome. That sounds great. Okay, so the first question that I want to start off with is what does like the good life look like to you? Oh, the good life. Well, I like to think of myself as pretty altruistic. So the good life for me means the good life for my friends and family. I would love to retire my parents. It's actually on my bucket list is to buy them a really nice house. I know what my mom wants. And my dad just is like, give me a chair in the living room. So I'm not sure how I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> but, but that's on my list. And having enough money to not have to worry about how I'm going to do the things that I need, basically. I can make my luxuries happen, but I want to be able to easily just eat and stuff like that. And being out from under the rock of, of any kind of debt. So whether it be a mortgage or a credit card debt or a car loan, anything like that, my good life means not having any of those. All right. Have you heard of Dave Ramsey? Because he talks about getting out of debt a lot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Dude, I've read every financial book you have ever heard of. I've, I have a copy. I've either paged through it. I've, I've clipped magazines. Okay, I didn't clip any magazines. <laughs> My mom clipped magazines for me <laughs> and gave them to me. But I've read a staggering amount of financial literature concerning the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm in my late 20s, but I read all that stuff in college. I was that weird kid that was like, oh, yeah, you, you have a 401k? People were like, what do you mean 401k? What are you even talking about? And how did you get into that? I feel like most people, as you already said, aren't really interested in that back in college. So what got you interested in the first place? Well, let me start that off by saying that I am freaking lucky as crap. So back when I was a teenager, I want to say... 16, whenever baby fat was a thing that people like, wanted to have, like with the little cat, the tail thing. Yeah. So my aunt got us, I, my sister and I got matching baby fat jackets, but we were not allowed to wear them until we read the books that she had assigned us. She assigned me The Richest Man in Babylon. My sister got, got Eat, Shoots, and Leaves. And I forgot my brother's gift and I forgot his book, but we all had books that were sort of not necessarily tailored to our personalities, but books that she thought were good reading. Each Shoots and Leaves, for those that don't know, is about punctuation. So if you put a comma in a weird place with Each Shoots and Leaves, it's talking about a panda bear or talking about a guy who buys dinner, shoots everyone, and then goes out. So, but I got The Richest Man of Babylon. It's a really short book that's about financials, and I wanted that jacket, so I was like, let me freaking read this book. And let me go ahead and walk out my baby fat jacket. So I read it and it was great. I liked, I liked reading anyway. So it's not that really I was being forced to do it. It was just that I, I ended up consuming it really quickly. It is my favorite financial book. It's not like other financial books in that there aren't, it doesn't have you doing steps like, like for example, in some of David, David Ramsey's books, 
it might be list all your financials and look at where you're spending money and look at where you're doing this and so on and so forth. The Richest Man in Babylon literally is about The Richest Man in Babylon way back in Babylonian times and it's stories about about that time period so it's kind of interesting hearing about the history but I'm sure it's not necessarily very accurate and it's little chunks of stories so first we're reading about the rich land of Babylon then we're reading about his friend the shield maker then we're reading about the archaeologist who's looking up Babylon way back way closer to now and it's the has the ten laws of gold first like pay yourself save money, stuff like that. So it's stuff that you can apply to any time, but it's consumed in story fashion. Yeah, so that probably makes it a lot easier to remember what in the world they were talk, tell, trying to tell you, right? Right, and I, I have the book itself. It's super tiny. I can bring it anywhere. Okay. And so what were some of your biggest takeaways from that book? Well, one of the biggest ones is definitely pay yourself first. A lot of times people say they don't have any money to save because it's the last thing that they think of. So first you pay your bills, you... I don't know, go out to the movies, and then you give yourself 10%. Me, because of that book, I pay myself first. So I took, look at my money. Whatever I've got, I take out my savings, and then I make the rest work for whatever else it needs to work for. I mean, yes, there's a line where if you can't make your rent payment, you're probably going to have to take some from your savings and things like that. But if I'm always putting money into the savings, it has money for me to do those kind of things that I need to do. So pay yourself first. And the second biggest takeaway probably was you should be able to live off of 70% of your income. And if you can't, you need to figure out how you can need, how you can get a different job so that you can. Let's see. So you already pay yourself first. And have you always been able to live off of like 70% of your income? Remember how or... I said I was lucky? Yes. So I have always been able to live off of 70% of my income. At one point, I had actually flipped it. So I was living off of 30% of my income and I was paying 70% out to my student loans. Uh, that was what I was living at home, so that was that was part of it. I because I I bought I bought a car. I didn't have any car payments. I just had insurance. The lady really really freaking liked me, so she gave me the cheapest payments I could afford, but that also did covered everything. And I just I ate really cheaply, but I also had two jobs, and I made myself indispensable at both of my jobs. They were like, please don't leave. We'll pay you more money so that you stay. That's one of my, my biggest goals of every job is to make yourself indispensable. And how did you do that in those past two jobs and how are you doing that now? Well, one job was the desk job and I won't lie, I kinda hated it. Well, that's not true. I liked the work, my boss was dumb. Everyone says that, but my boss was actually dumb. So I just did good work. I recognized people around me also hated their jobs. It was it was a place where if you ask anyone that worked there, they were like, yeah, you know, I put food on the table, but I hate my life otherwise. I, <laughs> from another book, actually, I remember this phrase that said, any job worth doing is worth doing well. And I try to live by that. So it's, it's a job, right? And it's worth doing. I need money. So it's worth doing well. When I worked with my clients, I had clients and I helped them out with online meetings. I set it up for them. I answered questions, things like that. So when I had clients, I mentioned that they had the best possible experience so that they were raving about me to my boss, to my boss's boss, to whoever else. And they would ask for me when they had other, other meetings, which was pretty rare. My team was a team of six, six other people that worked that did the same thing that I did. And that really didn't happen to anyone else. It was just like, hey, can we have Zahava again? 
And so my, the boss above, my stupid boss, recognized that and literally called me into the office and was like, hey, um, don't tell anyone else this, but if you want, we can give you more money. And if the team goes down, we'll put you somewhere else. Just please don't leave. <laughs> Those exact words. So, so that, was, that was that job. And it was pretty, pretty, a pretty good paying job. The other job was actually at the parkour gym. Oh, oh wait. I'm going to interrupt yeah. you real quick. Um, did you find that really going hard at your job and trying to do it really, really well helped you enjoy your job more? Like, is that what made another difference between you and your coworkers? It's, it's interesting that you say going hard cause, because I didn't, at least to me, I didn't feel like I was working that hard. It was an easy job. It wasn't like I needed to use, or I didn't fire on all cylinders to do it. It was just connecting with people. So, yes, it did make it more interesting, but there were times where I was just sitting there doing my job and just like, man, this is so boring. I would rather be watching paint dry. I wonder how they apply popcorn sealant. Like I just, I, my, my mind would wander off to something else. And then I had two really great coworkers that I enjoyed. They made the job for me. So going to lunch and, and hanging out with them was, was a really big thing. But I think also finding little stuff to like was probably part of it. I, didn't, I never hated everything about any meeting. I would just hate this one person that asked a lot of questions. But then, you know, the content was interesting, or they have really good graphics, or that was a cool slide transition, or I'd just laugh at how terrible their slide transitions were, or things like that. And so I, I used the time to think of the good stuff instead of thinking about the bad things. All right. I can see how shifting your perspective in that way would definitely help make you enjoy your job a lot more, too. Mm -hmm. Um is this the same job where you taught yourself French so that you'd be... Yes. Yes, it is. I, so in my, in my downtime, I used that to learn French. But then also it gave me something to give me a goal. There weren't that many work goals. There wasn't, like, there wasn't really a way to move up on the team. It was just you're here or you do something completely different that doesn't relate to what you're doing now at all. So yeah, they said they needed someone to, to do French and I wanted the pay increase. So I learned French. How long did it take for you to teach yourself French? Three months. But that's, that's working, I mean, that's working really hard. I did a lot of research, like how fast can someone learn a language? And what I found generally was that three months if you work hard. And so I did. I, I worked hard th for three months. I finished the Duolingo language tree in that time. And then I started going to a language group where I spoke. And I sucked, of course. The first time I didn't understand anything. There was an old guy and none of his words made sense, but everyone else was talking to him. And I'm like, how are they getting this? Uh, so I graduated slowly from being able to talk to people that were my age to being able to talk to everyone in French. And I did the French test. I didn't pass with flying colors, but I made my argument. I said, hey, I know that this guy didn't think that it was good, but he's from Quebec and I speak Parisian French. They are different. I, as a Parisian French speaker, would have trouble understanding someone from Quebec anyway, but I will have less trouble understanding someone from Paris. Where are most of our people from? From France. Great. Then I can still do this. And he was like, all right, here you go. Dollar pay increase. Good argument. That's awesome. My aunt's a lawyer. She was the one that made, that made us read the books. I know how to argue. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's pretty impressive because I feel like most of the time people would just be like, I guess, you know, I'm just going to hate my job and, like, look at all the things that make me think it's terrible. And I'm, I guess I could teach myself French if I wanted to, but... 
Nah, it's too much work. It was just more fun because I I, I had another coworker who was a French speaker, so we we chat with each other, and then the Spanish speaker would always try to listen in because a lot of the words just are similar. So he would try to try to translate our conversations in real time, which was always hilarious. You spoke Spanish for that job too, right? I spoke Spanish, but they didn't they didn't put me as a Spanish Spanish worker, Spanish speaking worker, because they already had someone and they didn't need any more. So I didn't have to use Spanish in that job, but I did still speak it. Yes, I spoke it. Right. I mean, outside of work. All right. So earlier you mentioned that you paid off a lot of your student debt, or you were able to pay a lot of your income towards your student debt. Can you talk a little more about your student debt in the first place? How much you had, and how much you had, how what your percentage was, and where you're at in your payments now? Yeah. So I. I ended up with about twenty six thousand of student debt, student loan debt. It, looking at the numbers, especially compared to the to the national average, was lower than the national average. And honestly, the national average might be a little off. I've met more people that have six figure loan debt or almost six figures than I feel like makes sense for the average to be thirty thousand. Like it, I feel like it should be up about fifty or something, but whatever. So I had twenty six thousand, which. If you know the school that I went to, that's about half of a sem- as half of a year that I paid. That's that is a semester. So I got pretty lucky that I didn't have to pay way more. But I consider myself lucky, so everything seems lucky to me. So the straight up, that's a, so. So I started off with that. I did mess around and end up with capitalized interest because they gave me a loan folder at the end of the year, at the end of my student career and I freaking lost it. I have no idea where that mess went. And it had like, this is where your loan is, is stored. This is what your loan amount is. This is what you need to pay back. And this is when your grace period ends. So I missed all of that. I didn't miss the grace period. I just didn't get a chance to pay the interest off. So it was added to the principal of my loan, which kind of sucks, but whatever. You, you, at this point, I can't fix it. I'm not upset about it. So. As soon as I was out of college, I started looking for a job. I didn't look for a job in my field because I had other personal things going on at that time that it was more important for me to have a job close to my house than it was for me to have the job in my field somewhere else. So I just found any job. I, I'm of the school of thought. Any, money is good. As long as the job doesn't suck your soul out, go ahead and do it. So I worked at a gym the an actual like a fitness gym, a regular gym, teaching aerobics classes and things like that. And I didn't have a car, so I rode my bike there. So I was like dirt. I was at the dirt level of of making miles. I was raking it in, and I was super freaking fit. Riding my bike uphill. It was a thirty foot level change from my house to the place that I worked, going going upwards in elevation. So that was great. Then I got the the job the job where I learned to speak French and everything. And so. That was actually a much higher paying job. I ended up making about $14 an hour and there were bonuses and things like that. And since I was getting so many, so many accolades and things like that, I could use my extra bonuses to pay toward my student loans. So I was paying in the neighborhood of 600, 700 a month into my student loans. And that was, that's the main one that I have now. I, all of my debts are in one place except for one that was somewhere else. And again, got freaking lucky. Won a bunch of money at the craps table in Niagara Falls. 
and paid that student loan off completely with my winnings. So it disappeared very, very quickly. And then I just regularly paid into it. I paid, I had a, an amount that I was, that I could always pay for sure with the income that I would normally have. It was a, it was a nine to five job. So I'm there, I make this much money. Then if I had any extra money, I would pay that. So my base was 500 and sometimes I could pay a hundred extra. Sometimes I could pay 200 extra, whatever. So I was making payments all the time. I didn't just make the monthly payment, but then I also signed up for all the things that you could get that would lower your interest rate. So my company, if you do auto pay, they decrease your interest rate by 0.15 or something like that, which is good. It's worth it. And then I don't have to worry about my payments being late. So I did that and I had that the amount that I wanted to pay. And then again, I just pay whatever extra I had before, or after, or whenever the money was there and I, and I did my debt planning and I didn't need it. Great. Cool. Do you have a ballpark for how much interest? Like for what your interest rate is? Yeah. So if I do compound interest, because th- there are separate, there's of course a bunch of separate loans. One of them is 6.15, something like that. And the other one is three point something. Together, it's about 4.32% interest, I believe. I've done this before, but I always forget the compound interest rate. And yeah, that's my, that's my interest rate. And that is with my auto pay discount. So if I, as long as I keep auto pay on, then I get that, that, that discount or I, I have that interest rate. Okay. That makes sense. And so at what point are you supposed to have your student loans paid off? Ah, yes. I should have it done in the next few years. I set myself a goal to be paid off by 30 because I feel like 30 with student loans, like that's. 10 years, almost 10 years after graduating college, that's too, that's too much freaking time. So I did a lot. I had, I had freaking notebooks and, and like things on my computer. I did all the math of how much I need to pay to be paid off by 30. And because of the money that I paid ahead then, I'm actually on track, even though I'm only paying the minimum now because I make much less money. So I'm looking like I'm going to be paid off, if not before I'm 30, in the year that I will still be 30. Holy crap. Well, I I personally think that's freaking awesome because a lot of times I know people will just be like, yeah, you know, um, student loans, it's, uh, it's bad. I'm just going to pay it off till I die. So no big deal. No. So I think, Mm-mm. I think it's awesome that you went in and you like, like you just bit the bullet and looked at it. And then you also did the math so that you could figure out how you'd have to, um, how much work you'd have to do in order to pay off your to, like pay off your debt to hit your goal yeah and i just want to i just want to jump in really quick it's actually like doing the math sounds really hard i'm a math geek or at least i was but there's actually a lot of websites where you can just say student loan payoff calculator and it'll do the math for you you put in your loan you put in your interest rate you put in what your payment is and it says okay you'll be paid off at this time and then you can put in an extra part that says what if i pay off this much more no it'll, it'll change you so it'll, it'll say now you're paid off at this time and what if I do an extra payment once a year at this time? Basically, I use that for like my tax refund. So like, what do I pay about this much more every April? Okay, cool. You paid off at this time, and it shows you the actual the actual month to month view of it. So you paid this much, this much went to principal, this much went to interest, and now you owe this much, and so on and so forth until you're down to zero. So I just did a bunch of those calculations on all those free sites. Didn't have to do any actual math myself, and yeah right (laughs) and 
that was how I did my calculations. It was much easier, honestly, than I thought it was going to be. And every once in a while, I just check back in to see if I'm still on track. All right. Awesome. And then also, by being really aggressive with paying off your debt earlier, it meant that you accumulated less debt overall, right? Yes. The I, I go with what's called, I think it, I think this might be from David Ramsey. There are two kind of ways to pay off debt, the snowball uh, snowball style, and then there's the one where you attack the highest interest. Snowball is you pay the smallest loan first, regardless of interest. I prefer the style where I pay the one that has the highest interest, so regardless of the amount. And that way, it's gone and I'm making less, I'm accumulating less money in interest. So that's that's what I did. And my, my loan holder actually has this really cool system where if I pay extra money, they mark it as paid ahead. So they don't just take it and then it's gone. So my, my actual monthly pay for one of my loans is $0 a month. I have paid ahead so far that I could not pay anything until November of 2020 and I'd still be fine. I would still be getting interest, of course, but I wouldn't have any minimum payments due because I'm paid so far ahead. So that's awesome because now I've given myself breathing room for now when I don't make as much money and it potentially is sometimes harder to make those payments, I can just take that one off the table and keep that money and pay the other one that I'm not paid ahead on and still be good. I'm literally paid ahead by more than the, more than the debt that I have left on one of those loans. I think it's awesome that you put yourself in such a strong financial position by doing that because now you're able to go explore other ideas like you're doing currently mm -hmm. and see how it is and you don't have the gun to your head of debt like quickly increasing the way it could be if you weren't ready and now you get to see if this is the type of lifestyle that you like so yeah I think that's awesome and speaking of your current lifestyle uh, you said you're teaching English in Costa Rica right now right yes can you tell us about what got you interested in teaching English as a foreign language and why you decided on Costa Rica? Well, I, in general, like teaching. I feel like I'm kind of a natural teacher. That's I was teaching parkour in college, and then I went to teaching parkour in, as a job. And I just kind of, I, I like teaching. I feel like I'm a natural teacher. So it makes sense to go into something where I teach, but I also have had a side goal on my bucket list, of course, of always wanting to live somewhere outside of the US. So I just looked at that goal and looked at it and, and thought, how can I make this happen? And the easiest is teaching English because as a native English speaker, especially from the US, a native English speaker, there are a lot of places that want me to come or they want someone like me to come and teach people English. So. I just, I saw that as an opportunity and decided to go for it. As far as picking places to go, I wanted to go somewhere where I already spoke the language. So for me, that was Spanish and French, and French is pretty limiting. That's really only France. Or there are a couple places in Africa, and then Montreal. But again, I already said I don't speak Quebecois that well. It's a little bit different, just enough that I would have, there'd be a time where I don't understand anything, and I didn't want that. And Spanish opens up a lot more countries, plus that we're closer, closer in quotes for my mom. She's like, France is really far away. What if something happens? I'm like, mom, all of them are far away. What do you mean? But so the so South America was, was a little bit, a little bit closer and I had a lot of options. And from there, I really just looked on websites, did a lot of research, which places are good for English teachers. There are a lot of sites that have lists. And they list the countries in order from best place to work as an English teacher and worst place to work, and they give reasons. So, you know, this place is good because it has low 
a low cost of living and blah, blah, blah. This place has a high cost of living, but you probably get paid more, so on and so forth. And then I looked at them through the lens of what I like as a person that lives in a city or a rural area or things like that. I wanted a place I'd never been, which is easy. Never been to any of those places. I wanted somewhere where the parkour was going to be good. And Costa Rica showed up. I just Googled parkour and then country name on Facebook and the websites would pop up. And Costa Rica's one was, was really active. So that was great and their spots looked good. And that's basically that's basically how I chose it. And I, I, when I asked people about it, somehow everyone knows somebody who retired in Costa Rica. I'm like, really? How have I, have I never heard of any of these people? So that meant that it was, it was good because I had a feeling a lot of them probably didn't speak Spanish. So if, I, if they could go there and have a good life as a retiree without speaking Spanish, I could go there and have a good life speaking Spanish, being a teacher, and doing parkour all over the place. And how is your work-life training balance living in Costa Rica now? Well, I, uh, I, got, I got a really good apartment that is in the middle. I'm in the middle of the city that I live in, literally three blocks from Central Park. So I can walk to a lot of good spots, which is great because I do not have a car. I do not plan on getting a car. And buses have roaches on them, and I don't enjoy riding them when I don't have to. So... <laughs> I can walk to all of my, my good spots, so it's easy to get training session in when I have like half an hour or even an hour of time. I run down there, I train, I come home. My work schedule is really weird, so it's, not, it's nothing like a 9 to 5. It's not like I go to a school and I teach kids and then I come home. I work at a language school, so it is just adults who want to learn whatever language they want to learn. So I have classes. And the classes are two hours. So right now my block is from 6.15 to 8.15 p.m. So I'm actually open all day until I have to go do that. Originally, I just taught in the morning, and I was open for the rest of the day. And then later I taught sort of the entire afternoon, so from 2 to, to 6 or 2 to 8 occasionally. So basically I just get my training done in the morning. Because here it gets dark at 5.30-ish or 6. So I want to train in the morning anyway because I don't want to train when it's dark out. And I just try to get in training when I have time. But also I meet with the groups that are here. So I'm sort of a weekend warrior in that way. That Saturday, I meet with the girls to do parkour. Or Sunday, if I miss a Saturday one, I meet with everybody to do parkour. They have sort of different groups that meet. And then I train with my boyfriend whenever we feel like it. And now my neighbor's into it too, so I'm teaching her and that's fun. So it sounds like you have a pretty strong community that you got into out there? It's, it's kind of, it's, it can be strong. Like they had a competition at the local gym and that was pretty cool. But then normally when I go to Saturday practices, it's like four people and I, they're great. I love them, but I wish it were a little bit bigger. It feels like it's not as strong as the community that I came from, but it's not, it's definitely a community, and I definitely appreciate having them. And is there anything that's, like, sort of getting in the way of your work-life training balance at all, or not really? It's, it's mostly just figuring out how to do everything on the time that I have, because I work really far away from where I live now. I used to work 10 minutes away, but, but on, on foot. So that was really cool. So I could walk, and that was easy. But now I work, like, an hour and a half away by bus, 
So if I, to go to work at 6.15, I leave my house at like 4.30. So that kind of sucks. And then coming home, I finish at 8.15, and then I get home probably at 9.30, depending on traffic. So it means either taking a lot of Ubers so I can get home quickly, or taking the bus so I can get home cheaply, but probably significantly longer. Almost double the time if I versus an Uber and a bus. So that's hard because then I get home late, I need to eat dinner and go to sleep. But then I wake up in the morning and sometimes I'm tired or I need to figure out what I'm going to eat or chores and things like that. The stuff here is not the same level of efficiency as the stuff in the U.S. So doing laundry is not as simple as throwing the laundry in the machine and then coming back when it's, when it's all sort of wrung out and then putting it in the dryer. I have to fill the washer. I have to put the clothes in, put the soap in, wash it, drain it, refill it up again. It's a lot more of a hands-on process. So the time that I need to do that, I have to figure out, okay, I got to do laundry today. So do I have enough time to do laundry and train and shower and be ready to go to work? Or do I have enough time to do laundry and plan the meal so that when I come home, I can just eat and go to sleep? So it's a lot of scheduling is mostly the, the, big, the big issue with me. And then having enough, enough momentum kind of left to do the things I want to do. Plus, I've started running. So I get up and do like a three-mile run. And I have to figure out how to get that in. Because sometimes I'm like, yeah, oof, I'm done in 30 minutes. Other days I'm like, oh, gosh. And I've done it 45 minutes, and I had to stop and walk a whole bunch. So it's, it's, just, it's just a dance of scheduling. And how do you, like, do you use any systems to help you keep all that straight, or do you just sort of keep it all in your head and just freeball it? Well, I have a whiteboard. My college whiteboard, actually, for my freshman year is on my fridge, and I write notes on it for myself and for my boyfriend. So he usually leaves. I actually kind of the homemaker because he's just he's gone a lot more than I am so we meal plan and I write the meals on the board so that I know what I need to buy when I go to the market or what I need to prep and stuff like that and then the laundry is pretty easy I don't have to keep track of it it's just like is the hamper overflowing okay well then I guess I'll wash something today and then with regard to running and things if I am overbooked, the thing that does get moved, it will always, almost always be the, the exercise stuff because it's not just do I have time to do 30 minutes of parkour, it's do I have time to walk down to the park and do 30 minutes of parkour and then come back and shower, or stretch and shower because I don't like to exercise and cut out stretching. It needs to have, I need to have time for all of it. So if that happens, if I have to cut out my exercise for the day, I still do something. I do push-ups or I do squats. But then I get more chores done so that, that the next day I don't have to do as much laundry because I did it all when I couldn't train, so now I can train. And so what have some of the upsides and downsides been of teaching English as a foreign language out in Costa Rica? The upsides are, of course, being steeped in a culture that is a completely different from the culture that I came from. And even though I teach in an immersive environment, I'm not allowed to use Spanish in class. I still learn a lot about Spanish from the mistakes that my students make, which is really cool, which makes me a better Spanish speaker. So that part is awesome. And then, actually, my boyfriend also teaches English. One of his students freaking brings food every single class. So he'll come during break and he's like, oh yes, Maria made these. Or here's, here's, some, here's some desserts that, that Maria made or whatever. So that's cool. So we get to 
to, to soak in the culture that way because we essentially have a, a Costa Rican grandma feeding us at work. And I, I enjoy watching watch people succeed from my teaching. So when I tell a student for the fifth time, it's not depend of, it's depend on, and then the next time they get it or they make a mistake and then they correct it, I'm like, yes, I did that and you did that. We did that together. And I love it. It's, it's great. The downsides are less about the job itself and more about the management. So, of course, as with any country, there's different standards of living. So Costa Rica, if you ask anyone here, they say it's the most expensive country out of all the other ones. And I'm like, I had breakfast for $2. I don't know what you guys are talking about. But because it is a sort of, not, I don't want to say lower standard of living. It is, but not in a bad way. Just, it just is cheaper to have the same stuff here than it would be in the U.S. They tend to want to pay you less to do some of the same work. And you have to know with teaching, you have to do work outside of your class. I only get paid for the two hours that I'm in class, but I have to prepare the class. I have to, if I've given something that needs to be graded, I have to grade it. So that's maybe an hour or more of time that's taken out of my day to do work stuff. So that's kind of a downside, and they're really stingy about money. So they're not going to pay us for that time, and the pay that we, that we get, they're weird about increasing it. And this is, this is probably more of the place that I work. I don't think this is a, necessarily everywhere in Costa Rica or every place where you could teach English as a foreign language. And then I would say the, the traveling. At least for me, having to teach classes that are not at the school. So I, I also work with corporate groups. So I go to their building and teach. And that's hard because now I have to create content. We have a book that we work from in the school. So I just make, I have a schedule, I literally have a syllabus, and I just look at it and say, okay, I'm teaching this today. And I make it fun based on that. With the corporate group, it's, okay, this is Kevin, and he's working on this, so I need to teach this to Kevin. But after Kevin, I have Dan, and he's working on this, so I need to teach this to him. And keeping it all straight is, is hard, and there, I can't play audio because I don't have any audio to play. So... That's, that's hard to deal with. I would say that probably is the case for any private lesson. It's hard to make it engaging because now it's just you and the student. And if they're not, if they're not a little ray of sunshine, you have to fill in the gaps. And overall, has teaching English as well as living in Costa Rica itself, have those two overall been a positive experience or yeah. not so great experience? If someone asks me in general about how I like doing what I do, like my life now, it's great. I, I really enjoy living where I live because of the walkability. It's very different than where I came from in the suburbs. So it's kind of just, it's new and interesting. And again, I love being able to walk to spots. I didn't have that opportunity in the suburbs where I'm from. The teaching has been a little more of a meh sort of thing, only because I have a high standard of teaching for myself. So when I have to give someone a test that has spelling mistakes in it that I can't fix because it's the school's test, it really it really makes my blood boil a little bit because that reflects negatively on me. No student gets the test and thinks, oh, the school messed up. They think, oh, man, Sahaba sucks. Look at these spelling mistakes. So that is a little bit more of, of, a, of an issue. But I still enjoy, again, like I said, watching my students succeed and seeing them travel on their journey from, some of them from zero English or being able to say hello up to 
being able to ask me about my weekend and understand what I'm saying when I respond. And so would you recommend teaching English as a foreign language to parkour people who are sort of interested in traveling a bit and but still want to maintain their training a good amount? It really depends on the person. Like I said, teaching just any kind of teacher requires some work outside of class. And if you're not willing to do work unless you're getting paid, this is going to really, really suck for you. But if you're okay with putting in the work and essentially getting the part, the part out of the way that you don't like so that you can have your own time, then yeah, this is going to be awesome. Like I said, I have most of, most of my day free and the pay that I get is enough to sustain me to do everything else. So I'm, I'm open like six some odd hours of the day and so I can train in that time. And then I'm close to a bunch of places that I've never been before. So now I can go to those places. Like I went to Nicaragua for one of my border runs. That was cool. And I went to Mexico with my siblings. That was freaking cool. Those are things that, that weren't on the list before, but now it's like a hundred bucks to go over there by bus. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do that and stay in a cheap Airbnb and do all this cool stuff. So it's, it's definitely a good option if you, are, if you enjoy teaching. If you really hate teaching, it's still a good option, especially if traveling is really important to you. But you have to know where your limits are. All right. And what do your monthly expenses look like? And what does your monthly income look like as well in relation to that? Well, again, my income can be sort of flexible. So if they have a holiday or whatever, then I don't get paid. They have a lot of holidays here, to be, to be honest. And I also have some side hustles that I actually do that I get paid in American money. So sometimes the take home from that can be as little as 60 bucks, sometimes it's 800. So it really depends on how, if I've been putting in work. My income from being a teacher is in the neighborhood of $500 a month. I know that sounds super freaking low, right? But my rent is like 175 and my, my water and electricity bill is 20 bucks. Like my half is 20 bucks. And then, like I said, I can get breakfast for $2. And that's if I go to a restaurant and get breakfast. If I buy my own food, 20 bucks buys all the food that, I can prob that I'm probably going to use for the week. And I can go to the, the market. is also walking distance. So I can go to the market every day if I need to. The fresh market and the supermarket. So overall, I end up with... Hmm, I had these numbers in my head and now they're, they're slowly leaking out of my brain. But I have more than enough money to cover what I need to do here and have money to go on trips to Nicaragua or wherever. Especially if I've really pulled in some hardcore money with my side hustle. But my side hustle is to pay my student loans because Costa Rican money is hard to get out of Costa Rica. So the Costa Rican money pays my for my life here. My side hustle pays for my bills in the U.S. And when I was in Brazil doing something pretty similar, teaching English online, I viewed it sort of as like a working holiday more than anything. How do you view your teaching English as a foreign language situation? Is it like, a, is this the first step in your career or one of the first steps in your career? Or is it just like a holdover for the time being? That's a really good question. And that's actually one that I've kind of been battling myself because I don't really know where I fall on that spectrum. I feel like, and this is probably wrong, but I feel like when I talk to my friends, they all have something that they want to do. 
their heart is set on something. So they, they want to be a parkour athlete, they want to own a gym, or they want to, I don't know, have a hair salon, whatever their, their goal is. And me, I'm here like, well, I want to have pizza today. And that's about, about as far as my desires really go. Or they're just very general, like I want to retire my parents, but I don't have a plan to get there. So this is, it's just what my life is right now. And I have, I'm sort of planning to go to the next spot and teach English some more and hopefully make more money to save and maybe move back to the U.S. and do something else. But it's kind of, it depends on the week. When it's, a, when it's more of a lean week or the, the, the month, perhaps, if my take-home pay is, is a lot smaller, for example, this month, because we went home for two weeks of this month, now it kind of feels like I just have a job and this is what I do. But in those months where I have more money, then I go out to the mountains or I am going on a trip somewhere, like just an extra trip, then it feels kind of like, yeah, you know, I work on the side, but for the most part, I'm on a permanent vacation. So it, it really depends on my feelings and probably more my money situation at the time. And you said that you were planning on going to a different place to teach English. Is what is that place? And do you think the money situation there will be a little more advantageous? Yes. So the next place I want to go is Japan. So when I was searching everywhere, the highest paid places, the places with the highest paid English teachers were in no particular order, Japan, China, and Dubai, or the United Arab Emirates, kind of that area, and Korea. So those places are... And teachers are getting, first of all, depending on the place, they're getting paid really well, but they're also getting their apartments are covered, they get flights home, things like that. And that's awesome. I had to pay for my own flight home and I had to leave the country every three months. Like, that's a lot of work. So, so going somewhere where it would be easier and they pay more would be great. And that, that was kind of why I picked somewhere easy first. So I was like, I want to go somewhere where this is going to be easy before I go somewhere where it's going to be really hard. I don't speak Japanese, Korean or Arabic, or Chinese. Uh, I read a little bit, but I don't speak enough Chinese to do anything worthwhile. So this was kind of my per first step. The next place I want to go is Japan. That seems like a really cool place. And I've already been to China, so I'm kind of interested in living there. Even though I, I just visited, I didn't live there, but I want to go somewhere I've never been. So Japan is great, and from what I've seen, the parkour there is pretty awesome. But I'm, I might be mixing that up with some more else. I haven't done the research on J Japanese parkour recently. So that's where I want to go. And again, I've heard that they pay you really well because they have a sort of bigger need since from Japan, they do a lot of business deals and things like that. Also, they're very intense. They're workaholics. So their businesses want them to speak English really well, which means they want a native English speaker. And a lot of places want native English Native American English speakers as opposed to native um, British English speakers. So the market, the demand is really high. And they'll pay for you to come. They'll pay for your work permit. They'll pay for your, they'll give you either a stipend for your apartment or they just pay for your apartment. And then you get paid on top of that. So the apartment's usually the biggest cost. And if that's covered, that means I'm just going to set aside my rent payment as saving money to go back home or to do whatever. And again, Japan is a really cool place. I want to visit the places that are that are close by. From Japan, someone told me it's like fifty bucks to fly from one end of the end of the country to the other the other end. 
So there's that. I can visit Korea from there. I can visit China from there. I can visit Papua New Guinea. Like, whatever. That's cool. It's a whole, it's a whole other part of the world that I haven't had much chance to explore. I don't know why I said Papua New Guinea. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I never thought of going to Papua New Guinea, but okay. That, I guess that is close by? I'm I Honestly, sure. I, I, someone listens to this and they look at a map and might be like, damn, she's dumb. I don't remember where it is. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, I've heard really amazing things about teaching English as a foreign language out in different parts of Asia, largely because of what you were saying. First of all, they pay for, they take care of a lot of the expenses that you normally have, like getting there, getting back, and then paying for rent, which I think is just like totally amazing. But then so also awesome. I've heard that, yeah, I've also heard that people just get paid pretty well, all things considered. Like I've read on the internet about a lot of people being like, yeah, man, you know, I went over to Korea to teach English. I was drinking all the time. I didn't pay any attention to how much money I was spending or saving. And I finished my contract for a year and I turned around, I had like 25,000 extra dollars just chilling in my bank account. And I was like, that's insane. Mm -hmm. And so like, yeah, I mean, it can definitely set you up for a good financial position. If assuming Japan is similar to that, then I feel like it will definitely help you on your goal to paying off your, your student debt by the time you're 30, right? Right. And that was to say, that would be a huge, if it does, it should, it should, ideally it would make me pay it off even sooner but also i i just want the the cultural difference like coming here to, to costa rica the standard of living is different so i had to get used to that and and sort of get get comfortable with a new culture and japan is wildly different from costa rica and the u.s so i am interested in that like i'm i'm sort of more interested in the small living like it's kind of tight quarters so that's that should be interesting and just dealing with and it's a whole new language that I have to learn I've started working on it but like going there would make me get really good and it would be kind of like a cool party trick to put on my back pocket like oh what languages do you speak oh I speak Japanese I love the you look like you'd speak Japanese kind of thing I love I, I, I'm, I'm ready for that yeah I think I think those are pretty good goals to have especially the uh, ability to stunt on people linguistically just for funsies oh it's oh it's so fun I, I really feel like I'm a bad person for how fun it is to just randomly pull out another language and not necessarily to exclude someone, but just just to have it. Because my, I'm teaching my boyfriend French. He doesn't know it that well, but all of our Uber rides are in French. So I'm talking to him in French casually and the Uber driver's just kind of sitting there and occasionally they'll be like, so how many languages do you guys speak? <laughs> <laughs> So that's cool. I, I, I want to, like, on a bucket list also is to be a hyper polyglot. That's six languages or more. So I am halfway there. Well, I have my six languages. I don't speak any of the other three well enough to be to say, yeah, I, I speak four languages. No, I, I speak three, and one of them is English. So that doesn't really what count. What are these languages? Well, uh, of course, I speak English fluently. I speak Spanish fluently and French mostly fluently. It depends on what kind of French it is and the day, of course. I speak American Sign Language, but I wouldn't say that I'm fluent. I can definitely have a conversation. Uh, I have a basic level of Russian. I understand more than I speak. I don't get to practice it very often here. My boss is Ukrainian, so I actually can speak to her in Russian, 
But yeah, right? It's crazy. It's Language schools are the best. I can speak with people who are native speakers in lots of other languages other than Spanish and English. And then I was learning German. I have stopped learning it to focus more on Russian and also on Japanese. Because if I'm going to Japan, I'm going to need Japanese. German is, is on the list, but it's later down. So those other three, three languages that I said that I don't speak very well are German, Russian, and Japanese. All right. Yeah, I mean, I also have a similar goal. I'd like to speak at least two more languages by the time I'm like 30, 35. We'll see how nice. that goes because my momentum has sort of died since learning Portuguese. I mean, I'm actually doing a pretty good job of like learning more Portuguese as I go, despite mm -hmm. living in the United States. But, you know, I am not obsessed like I used to be. <laughs> I know, I feel you. Like, looking back at the time when I learned French, and I'm like, I did that in three damn months, and here I am, like, six months into Japanese, and I forgot how to ask what time it is again. Like, I'm, like every time it happens, I'm like, damn it, Sahaba, what are you doing? <laughs> but also, it is, I, I like to pick languages that are challenging, and Japanese is right up there at the top of the list, right, actually right under Chinese, as, as really hard. I remember the sounds, and I see a new kanji, and I'm like, oh, hey there. I guess I'll just <laughs> skip this word then, because you, you can't sound it out. You, either you know it, or you don't know it. And even if you do know it, you might say the wrong sound. You might use the kunyomi when you should be using the onyomi. And you just go on with your day, and you're like, yeah, well, I didn't know what that said, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so if you... Okay, so let's go, let's say you go to Japan and you like it a lot, but you decide that you want to go on to some other type of field. What type of work would you be interested in doing after that? Mm. Do you mean after leaving Japan or being in Japan and having taught some? Whichever one works for you. I probably, Don't it would probably be, be after leaving Japan because I think they'll give me a contract. I can't just stay. But I, I don't know. That's again that thing where I don't really have strong feelings in that sort of thing. I guess the only thing that I could actually say that I really want to do is I want to get back into welding. I used to make metal books when I was in college and welding was so such a really good stress relief. You know, you were there, you were my ambulance caller if I cut off my finger. And I have been looking at welding materials and things like that when I go home. It's actually not that expensive. If I do a good job, in Japan, I can buy the material that I need, the machines, and then the the only continuing cost would be buying new material. But if I'm selling stuff like that, then I sell a book, I could buy stuff to make more books. And the steampunk community, because my books are, and their books are made out of metal. They're pretty, pretty hardcore steampunk. The steampunk community will shell out for stuff. There's not a whole lot of places that make custom steampunk things. So I... I would love for that to be what I do because I would enjoy it. It gives me an outlet for my creativity and it's not a nine to five. But if I can't do that or in my path to doing that, I would love to also own real estate because it's very, it's very stable in that people need a place to live no matter where you are. So if I can own something and people can live there, that'd be great. I love working with my hands, so remodeling is really fun to me, and I've done probably, I feel like I've done more more than, than most people my age with regard to remodeling already, so I have a lot of experience, 
And that's just, those are just two things that would be great. And it would leave, it would give me the, the, the chance to reach my other bucket goals, my other goals on my bucket list of things like retiring my parents and stuff like that. I have other, other goals, but the ones for my family are kind of the more important ones. Some of them are things like, oh, actually, I want to build a house. That would give me having enough money would allow me to to I want like I want to build it with my own hands. I don't want to pay someone to build my house. I would like to do the work of framing it and doing all that and really personalizing it and walking into a house that really I'm like, yeah, I put that light in. It's crooked, but whatever. <laughs> and speaking of real estate, have you heard of the Bigger Pockets like website and podcast? No, I haven't. Okay, I as I'm under the impression that it's like the biggest online community for real estate stuff, and mm-hmm. I found a ton of different information about it. So if you're interested in it, or if any other other people listening to this podcast are interested in real estate, you should definitely look into that. And maybe we'll be able to get some people who are really into real estate in the parkour community on to funding the jump, so we can get into that if that's what people are interested in, and that uh. would be pretty cool. That would be awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out because real estate's hard, man. I watch Property Brothers and any other kind of home remodeling show a lot. And looking at them opening up those walls, I'm just like, man, this is a roller coaster ride. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's, I feel like it's, it's, I feel, it seems like something that would be as rewarding as teaching because you see, you see your work, you see the progress that you've made. And that's something that you really can't, you don't get that in a lot of other things. Um, I have like one more question, but before we get to it, do you have any like social media plugs that you want to put out there? Oh, that's great. Well, I don't have that much stuff. If you want to look at me taking pictures of my food and occasionally doing cool things, my Instagram is hot lava zahava. It all rhymes. It's all one word. No underscores, no numbers. H-O-T-L-A-V-A-Z-A-H-A-V-A. That's me on Instagram. Um, I'm the only zahava, well, not the only zahava on Facebook anymore. But zahava Alston, my, my, my Facebook name is pretty straightforward. And it's, it's probably the girl with all the hair. That's there's not that many Zahavas that have a whole lot of hair. And that's, I mean, that's it. Also, if people are looking for you from the parkour community, then they most likely have some mutual friends with you. So it'll be pretty easy <laughs> to know who the right Zahava is. Yeah, I, I've, I, I would wager that I'm probably the one Zahava on most people's friend list, especially if they're also into parkour. Maybe there's, there's one other one. And so the final question is, what's a project that you're working on and how can we help you with it? Oh... Project that I'm working on. Well, all of my projects are kind of self-contained in that I there's not much you could do to help me. But I guess the thing that I'm probably doing that's the most community involved here is trying to get the parkour feminino group up a little bit more. That's the name of the group here, women that do parkour. It's a great group. It's just they're. They just need more interest. If you go to their their page on Facebook, and it is Parkour Feminino, with an O at the end, you can see the pictures and stuff that they do, and kind of just, I don't know, putting maybe some inspiration there, or liking the page would be great. 
to get more people interested in, in doing parkour. Because people, especially especially women in a place where the community is kind of small for women, like here, they want to do it, but they're afraid to take that first step. And if it looks like it's a ghost town, they're more likely to not to not take that first, they, they, take that leap to go out to a training session that they've heard of. So that's probably the only thing that you could, that anyone could help with. What about for Japan? Like, would it be helpful to you mm-hmm. if people were like, oh, I know Japanese people or something like yeah. that? Okay. For, for my personal projects with regard to going to Japan, it would be great if someone could give me more details about what work life is like there. I found my own, I found a job board, but if people have links to more job boards or if they know somebody or someone who's been there and left, or even if you visited, any information would be really great because I right now am in the very early stages of looking at Japan. And so I don't have that much information, but any any information with regard to that is good information. If it's about how horrible it is, it's about how great it is, I would love to hear people's input and I can sort it out for myself. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to us and it was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I was glad I could be here and, and answer some of your questions. It was really good. It made me think about some of my own answers. Awesome. And I'll definitely try to get you back on the show when you make it out to Japan so we can hear a little more about your teaching English as a foreign language journey out there, how it's going, and how the parkour situation is for that place so that anybody who's interested can, you know, get some more information, get in contact with you, and maybe follow you out there. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't know. How do you sign off on podcast? All right. Thanks so much, Zahava. I'll see you around. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. I was going to say, do you have, some people have like a sign off that they do. If you came up with something, not even necessarily catchy, just something that's like, I don't know, keep the parkour gravy train rolling or whatever. Yeah, you know, you know how much gravy there is on the parkour train.